Thank you very much, Rabbi Warnick. Um, thank you all for coming. It was a pleasure to be with all of with some of you last night, and more of you uh, this morning. And really, what a what a wonderful service. I, I was thinking, I guess, because when you talk in a in a synagogue and a shul on Shabbat, you got to try to tie in whatever you're going to talk about with regards to current events to the parsha. And the parasha can always be manipulated into different ways to be able to tie into what's happening, or you can manipulate, I guess, current events to tie into what's happening in the parasha. But really, one thing that jumped out was lotikach shochad, right? Don't take bribery, and we have a prime minister who's on trial for bribery, so I said, okay, right there, we could just talk about that. But then we'll start off with a bit, it'll be a little depressing. So I said, maybe we should just start talking about Iran, because that's a little more positive, maybe. But... <laughs> But I say all that kiddingly because really I think when we look at the parasha, what we have is this idea of how important it is to have regulations and rules and laws for a society that's been created. When we, after Yitziat Mitzrayim, when we leave Egypt and we take our first steps as a people, as the Jewish nation, so we get the Aseret Hadibrot, right? We get the Ten Commandments, but these are very vague lofty principles and morals and values that don't really go into the details. And that's what this Parsha comes to do for us, is to set us straight to explain what the rules of engagement are going to be for all aspects of life. And I was thinking about this with regards to October 7th, which really was a moment in time that I think to a large extent for the state of Israel, but also for the wider Jewish people needs to serve as almost a reset moment or a reset button. We haven't been doing things right. I think that's clear today, definitely in terms of security, the strategic blindness that we suffered from vis-a-vis -vis the Gaza Strip and Hamas, knowing that there is a monstrous terrorist group that is growing on the other side of the border and we felt, how does the saying go, good fences or high fences make good neighbors? We thought that that would work. And that blew up in the most vicious, barbaric way that's humanly possible on October 7th. But when we think about other aspects of how we are as a people and as a nation and as a state, I think that there too, we also have to press the reset button. We're doing that now with Gaza. The paradigm is hopefully shifting. I spoke a bit about last night. What does victory look like? How can this war potentially end? So I don't want to repeat myself too much for those who were here also yesterday. But I want to talk about four aspects and elements of this war that I think also have to change. The first is with when we look inside Israel and civil society, there are two sectors or subsectors within Israel that we have huge opportunity today to transform, to change, and to steer in a positive direction. The first are the ultra-Orthodox, the Haredim, who make up 13% of Israeli society. Does it make sense that they should continue not to serve in the IDF? Does it make sense that only 50% of the men are working. By the way, 70 plus percent of women participate in the workforce, which is like the national average. 
but the men do not. And out of the 50% of men who do work, only about a quarter have a job that is a full-time job. It's not sustainable. When we think about Haredi men, and I have Haredi friends and family, nieces and nephews who do not serve in the IDF, while I have other nephews and a daughter who do serve in the IDF. We're like a blended family, like many families throughout Israel today. And I know what goes on around the Shabbat table at my in-laws because of the mix of the family and those who have children who serve in the IDF and those who have children who do not. There's an inherent tension today. And it's not just around the, my own family's Shabbat table. It's everywhere. How do we change this? October 7th has to be a moment that we say this is no longer possible, especially when we consider the demographics and the fact that the Haredim multiply every generation. So according to population projections, by 2055, which you think, if you think about it, is really around the corner, they will make up 30% of the Israeli population. If we have 30% of the Israeli population that only 50% of the men are working, there goes our economy. It just won't work. So something does have to change. October 7th could be that moment, that spark that was needed to change that in a positive direction. But I also think about the Israeli Arabs. 20% of Israel's citizens are Israeli, Arab citizens, are Israeli Arabs. Muslims, Christians, Druze, Bedouin. It wasn't that long ago, just about two and a half years ago, during one of the last Gaza operations known as Shomer Chomot, Guardian of the Walls, I'm sure many of you remember there were riots, violent riots, near lynches in the mixed cities throughout Israel, in Lod, in Akko, in Jaffa, all across the country. That was a short eight-day, 11-day long operation. We've been fighting now in Gaza for 120, I think today is the 127th day. Have you seen any riots in the mixed cities? Thank God, no. So what does that mean? What does it mean that there was that leader of the Ram party, Mansour Abbas, who went into a coalition in the last government before the current one? There is an opportunity to better integrate people who are already citizens of the state of Israel. Why are we not taking advantage? of this opportunity? Why are we not doing more to change and to propel Israeli society in a more positive direction? The third piece that I want to talk about has to do with Israel-Diaspora relations. Rabbi Robin, she was here, there she is, mentioned to me that today is the 11th anniversary of when she, am I allowed to say, of when she was arrested at the Kotel for praying on Rosh Chodesh Adar 11 years ago together with what's known as the Women of the Wall. To me, that's a stain on Israel as a country. The fact that still today, there are Jews around the world who, yes, pray differently, differently than the chief rabbinate, than the way that the Orthodox mainstream movement that controls matters of religion and state still in Israel. But when I think about it, how is it that we have Jews around the world who feel that they don't, are not welcome and they don't have a place in our holiest of cities in Jerusalem at the holiest site that we pray at, at the Kotel? How is it that we, the state of Israel, because of the mix, the toxic mix, I would add, of politics and religion, we are turning people away from religion 
as opposed to bringing them closer to religion. You know, if you look at statistics and numbers in Israel, what's the percentage of people who do a brit milah, right, circumcision for their sons? It's like 99%. What's the percentage of people who uh, hold a Pesach Seder? Also, high 90s. Fast on Yom Kippur, high 90s. But what's the percentage of Jews in Israel today who are getting married through the Rabbanut, through the chief rabbinate, because there is not a civil marriage option in Israel. You can only, if you are two Jews, get married through the rabbinate. That, those numbers are dropping. They're declining because people are turned off by them. So why with Brit Milah, Pesach, and Yom Kippur, people are engaging? Because there are no laws about that. The moment you make a law, you are turning people away. We are the Jewish state. We should be open and more accepting of people who want to engage with the beautiful traditions and the religion that we have. But the opportunity that we're presented with now, after October 7th, I'm guessing that a lot of you in this room received phone calls from people saying, I don't know if you were coming to Israel, can you take a, a bulletproof vest with you or a helmet? or to raise money for drones that people needed because the Miluimnikim, the reservists, didn't have enough? How much money, I'm sure, that UG, UJA, is that what it's called here in, in, in Toronto? The UJA probably raised hundreds of millions, I'm guessing, at this stage. Federations across North America, over a billion dollars. And what are we saying still to certain Jews? No, we, we don't want you. This has to change. And October 7th, is that opportunity to press that reset button. But what I also want to talk about in terms of security is the required change that we need along our borders and beyond. We spoke a lot about yesterday about Gaza, but we also have to look at the fact that there's a mini war that is raging in the north. And just last night before Shabbat came in here, over 30, 40 rockets, and maybe some of you saw that video of how Kipat Barzel, how Iron Dome worked magnificently in intercepting the rockets that were fired at Kiryat Shmona by Hezbollah in the north. We have 100,000 Israelis who have had to evacuate their homes along the border. We have ceded territory, essentially, to Hezbollah. At the moment, we have created a security zone inside Israel because we don't want to fight a war. We want to try to avoid a war. But the question is, are we not falling again into a strategic blindness? And I don't want to sound like a crazy warmonger who just wants war all the time, but I don't think it makes sense, and I'm sure you, most of you would agree with me, that we end the war in the South, and we still live with the sword up against our neck in the North. And also, how do we convince 100,000 people to go back to their homes? What assurances will they have that this will not happen, what happened on October 7th, won't happen on whatever day it might be, up along the border with Lebanon where you have Mitula and Kiryat Shmona and Malkia and Avivim and all the other kibbutzim and moshavim that are there. But it's a real dilemma because this is a war of a scope and scale that Israel has yet to encounter because of the number, the sheer number of rockets and missiles that Hezbollah has. For all that Hamas has done, I hate to say it, but that's child's play compared to what Hezbollah potentially can do to Israel with its rockets and its missiles. And despite that, 
The Israeli people stand resilient and prepared to have to do what's needed to provide the security that they so deserve after so long of living under these threats. But even more so, another strategic blindness in something that has to change is the way that the world has been confronting Iran. Imagine for a moment that you are the Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, the Supreme Leader, or you are the President of Iran, Raisi. You're sitting right now in downtown Tehran, and you're rubbing your hands in glee because it's working. Israel's fighting Hamas. It's fighting Hezbollah. The Americans and the British are bombing in Yemen, right? The Houthis. Who knew of these guys until now, right? They are uh, disrupting shipping lines and lanes throughout the Persian Gulf. There's attacks by Iraqi and Syrian militias that are proxies also of Iran against U.S. troops in places like Jordan, where they killed the three of them just last week. And what happens in Iran? Absolutely nothing. They have complete immunity, even though they are generating the most chaos and bloodshed today in the world. That has to change. It's like we're fighting an octopus. And we're whacking. It's like a whack-a-mole game at the tentacles who are the proxies of Iran, but the head, nothing happens to it. And this is going to come back and haunt us. And I'm not advocating right now military action against Iran, but what I do want, would like to see, is what I call a credible military threat. That the Iranians were to feel that there is a genuine prospect and possibility that something will happen to them. Today they don't feel that. As great as it is that the U.S. And, and the U.K. attacked in Yemen against the Houthis, what does that send? What message does that send? Only when it disrupts trade is military action taken. Besides for that, nothing. So what do the Iranians think that nothing will happen to them? And we see what they've been doing over the last 126, 27 days. They've enriched more uranium to over 60%. They're on their way to what's known as the SQ, the significant quantity, what's needed of HEU, of high-enriched uranium, over 90% military-grade for nuclear weapons. They've already accumulated enough for several bombs if they were to decide to go to the breakout stage. And instead of being stopped and being pushed against the wall, they are allowed to proceed and to progress without being made to pay a price. My last book, Shadow Strike, which is about the story of how Israel destroyed Syria's nuclear reactor back in 2007, touches on some of these issues. Survival, existential threats, and the right way forward. And I'm not going to get into it all now, because that's a whole other conversation. But it's a blueprint for how these decisions can be made, how they can be dealt with, and how threats can be identified. And I think that even the big lesson that I took away when I worked on that story, which really showed a lot of how the U.S. and Israel work together and have differences. If you recall, George W. Bush decided at the time not to attack. And our prime minister at the time, Ehud Olmer, told President Bush on a phone call, this is unacceptable. I carry the, the, the burden of the survival of the Jewish people on my shoulders. And I have to do everything possible to ensure that we don't have a threat of an existential nature. But you saw that that difference, the relationship still held together because of the close alliance and the respect that we had for one another. Do we still have that today? 
with the current leadership in Israel? I'm not sure. But it's also a story of what we've seen over time of what makes Israel unique. We're a complicated country, extremely complicated. We're difficult people, that's also true. But we're threatened like no one else. But we also take the role, which is the preservation of the Jewish people, extremely seriously. As Hillel HaZakain, the ancient sage from the Mishnah, said some 2,000 years ago, If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? And I just want to finish by saying, I saw out there the empty chair for Omer Nutra. I didn't know Omer. I've gotten to know his parents, Ronayn and Yael, since October 7th. And I just want to finish with one short story, and, and it's about me, but it, it's not about me. On October 9th, you know, Jerusalem, that's where I live, the whole country shut down. The country was dead. No one was going out, not at night, not barely during the day. And my wife, Chaya, and I decided to go for a walk in the morning. And I get a phone call while we're walking from a friend for, who serves in a unit, Sayer and Matkal. And an elite com commando unit, they were the guys who uh, raided Entebbe back in 1976, saved the Air France hostages. And he says to me that a friend of his, his mother is missing from Kibbutz Be'eri, and is American-Israeli. And should he play up the American card in the media, should he not? And I said to him, let, let me talk to the guy, I spoke to him, gave him some tips. We knew of a, I knew of another American-Israeli family whose son was missing, Hirsch Goldberg, Poland, who lives in the neighborhood where I live. I know John and, and Rachel well. And then I bumped into another friend while on this walk, and I was telling him about how I already know of now two American-Israeli families. And he said, oh, I actually know of a third. And then we decided, this is 8.30 in the morning, we decided that if we can find one more on this Tuesday, we're going to hold a press conference. We managed to track down a fourth. There ended up being about 11, 12 American Israelis. Some of them are still being held inside Gaza. Omer is one of them. And there's one, Sagi Dekelchein, 35-year-old, whose wife gave birth about a month and a half ago to their second child while he's being held in Gaza. And we found four of these families, and we called a press conference in Tel Aviv. And we got the Carlton Hotel, if you're familiar with it, gave us their hall for free. I called up a satellite company I knew, and they said they would broadcast it for free. And we had 50 media outlets. Lester Holt was there, Becky Anderson from CNN, you name it, from around the world, everybody, and broadcast this whole thing live. On Fox News, on ABC, on NBC, on CBS, on CNN. Later that night, President Biden gave a speech where he mentioned I now know that there are American-Israeli hostages who are being held in Gaza. This was born out of a walk in the morning where I happened to bump into a friend. And it's not about me, but it's about what Israel and the Israeli society have done and what all of you have done for Israel, how everyone has stepped up and done their little part, but together have showed how we are connected in a way that we probably did not imagine was even possible on October 6th. But we now know it is. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we going to do about it?
Thank you very much and Shabbat Shalom.